E. Michael Jones, an erudite, an intellectual, a Catholic thinker, and uh, YouTube without his YouTube channel. Uh, what happened, Dr. Jones? Uh, th there was no uh, previous announcement. There was no negotiation. There was no warning. Uh, they just uh, terminated my YouTube channel. They said I violated their hate speech laws, and that's that. So they took down all of, uh, we had about 60,000 subscribers, just had disappeared overnight. So, uh, as I said, we just moved to other platforms, and life goes on. Life uh, goes but on. What, what we're seeing here is a purge uh, of all of the people uh, that uh, have a have a have a clear have a clear sense of what's going on. I think that's the common denominator here. There are people. I just I was looking at YouTube uh, recently. Uh, you can uh, find instructions on how to engage in criminal activity. That's on YouTube. You can uh, like a, a video about how to get involved in e whoring, which is basically fraud, cheating people out of money uh, by fraud. That's all available on YouTube. Uh, but uh, the criterion of the people who get removed are the people who have some understanding of what's going on. Because we are in the middle of a revolution right now in the United States. And the revolution is proceeding under false pretenses. Uh, the false pretenses are basically that it is a racial conflict. What we're seeing here is a, a deliberately orchestrated racial conflict uh, by people uh, who uh, are outside of that racial conflict. And that is uh, basically the Jews. So what you saw in Minneapolis, for example, was a black man uh, under a white policeman. And we're supposed to say this is racial conflict. The white policeman is a racist. The black man is an innocent victim. I'm going to go out into the streets and I'm going to burn down a building. That's the narrative. That's the acceptable narrative in the United States. Uh, when the Palestinians watched that video, they saw the knee hold that uh, pa uh, Israelis use to subdue Palestinians. So if you look into it, it turns out that the Minneapolis Police Department was sent to a seminar in Chicago where the Israelis instructed them not only in these techniques, but also in attitudes. And the attitude is basically now that the American Police Department is supposed to, uh, America's police departments are supposed to treat Americans like Palis the way Israelis treat Palestinians. Uh, the, the group behind that was the Anti-Defamation League. They go around and they arrange seminars all over the country to have Americans, American police officers being instructed by Israelis. Uh, the other side of the equation is the black man. That explains the white policeman and how he learned that. Uh, the black man, uh, that is Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter is being supported by George Soros, another Jew. So you have two Jewish organizations creating race war in the United States, and both of them are invisible to the average person. And if you bring it up to them, it's called anti-Semitism, and that's the reason you get banned from from YouTube and from Amazon. Uh, I, I have to ask you a couple of hard questions about uh, 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 the race. Um, what what are your criteria for something in this um, example a race to exist? Does it the origin? Does the origin make it exist? Or uh, for example, if the origin is human, it does not. Uh, because it seems this is the case. If your claims are true, that race does not exist, and it is a construction of human mind, um, a Jewish mind. Uh, Race might be a construction of human mind, but it seems as if people embraced it and they live according to it, at least some people. There are people that are in danger because they are something according to this construction. And there are people they, that feel they are entitled to something because they are something according to this construction. Uh, this is now the reality, independent of its historical origin, and while there is a path of red-pilling masses about its origins, what uh, you, for example, have been doing for quite a while now, 
there's also plenty of evidence that it is a very narrow path. Uh, you yourself are, and your uh, YouTube and Twitter and so forth have been the evidence um, for uh, the narrowness of this path. What do you propose or do you see it differently, uh, uh, more optimistically than I see well, it? Well, if you're talking about race, uh, you have to distinguish between categories of reality and categories of the mind. If you want to talk about categories of reality, uh, my nose has a particular shape uh, because my forebears came from northwestern Europe. Okay, if you come from Africa, you have a different color skin, a different color, a different shaped nose, different kind of hair. There are obvious distinctions here, physical distinctions. They're obvious to anyone. The question then comes: What about what meaning do you impose on them? And once you get to the issue of meaning, now you're talking about categories of the mind. And the categories of the mind are created to mobilize categories of reality for political ends and political purposes. And that's what that's what we're seeing here. So uh, just to get, I mean, I've already talked about uh, Minneapolis and the drama, the elements of drama that are based on racial characteristics. If I go to St. Louis, the, cur the current battle in St. Louis is over the statue of St. Louis. Uh, the city was named after uh, King Louis IX of, of France. Okay, and there are a group of people that want to have that statue taken down uh, in St. Louis. Uh, why do they want that statue taken down? Did, is there a racial conflict here? Well, there is a racial conflict around the statue. Black Lives Matter has showed up at the statue. But what does this have to do with black slavery in the United States of America? King Louis IX lived in France in the 13th century. There were no black slaves in France in the 13th century. King Louis did not uh, own slaves. Why is, this being, why is this being portrayed as a racial narrative? Well, because that's the way you get revolution in the United States. You have to turn this conflict into a racial conflict in order to mobilize large numbers of people. So if you ask, well, what did Louis IX do? Well, it turns out, according to their description, that he burned the Talmud. Well, what's that got to do with race? Let's, to, to, are the blacks upset because he burned the Talmud? The blacks don't even know what the Talmud is. Okay, so who's upset about the Talmud? What's the answer to that question? Well, it might be Jews. It might be Jews. <laughs> it might, might be, be Jews. <laughs> they're the only group who knew that Louis the Ninth had yeah. burned the Talmud because they passed that on from generation to generation. So once again, you see it's Jewish animus behind this this thing, and so they have a front man. Uh, who calls himself Umar Lee. He's a convert to Islam. He claims to be a descendant of uh, Robert E. Lee, claims to be black, and he is the front man. So this is confusing. Why? He's a cab driver. He's not even a cab driver anymore. He's an unemployed cab driver. W who appointed him the leader? Well, guess who? The <laughs> Jews. Because the Jewish press started pro uh, portraying this man as something, someone serious, the local rabbis got in on his case, and, and as soon as that happened, then the mainstream media picked it up because they're controlled by Jews, and suddenly they gave uh, a credibility to a narrative that no one would have taken seriously anymore. So there's going to be a conflict, a confrontation at the statue. What does he do? Who is, who is the other side of the conflict here? We know the Jews are on one side. Who's on the other side? Um... Other people, some people say whites, Europeans, Catholics, Christians. Okay, you, you just gave the answer because yeah. they are all mutually exclusive categories. The Catholics are upset because this is a saint and, and there is a large Catholic population in St. Louis. So it turns out it's a, it's a battle between Catholics and Jews over who's going to control the city in the middle of a revolution that the Jews started in Minneapolis. Okay, so what is Mr. Lee doing? Umar Lee, what's he doing? He tweets out, white supremacists are coming to the statue. 
They have come from Charlottesville. It's the same people who were in Charlottesville. These are white people. They are racists. Why did he do that? Well, because he wants to get Black Lives Matter to show up and engage in some type of conflict. So as soon as he tweeted that, the people who were going to the statue, they said, no, we're Catholics. We're not, we're not white. We're Catholics who are praying the rosary. Well, that's different than white supremacist, isn't it? But the message got out to Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter shows up and they beat up this 60-year-old white man, uh, 60-year-old Catholic who's praying the rosary because they think he's white. And if you're white, they can do anything they want to you. You have no rights if you're white. So what you have here is identity theft. This is identity theft orchestrated by the Jews who want race war in the United States as part of their revolution. What's the tree? I, I just read a couple of hours ago, I read this, um, this article of some woman, of some girl of Jewish uh, ancestry of heritage. And she, she wrote something about um, rich white men ruling the world. Do you think there's uh, this similar trickstery be behind it? Of course there are. What's the richest group in the United States of America? Is it white people? Take a guess. Is it Catholics? It might be Jews again. <laughs> It's Jews. They're the richest group in the United States. They're the smallest group, one of the smallest groups, and also one of the richest groups. So once again, we have this issue of identity theft, where the Jews are pretending that they're not white, okay? Uh, they're pretending that they're not privileged. Do you know the book that got me uh, banned from Amazon Kindle? It was an e-book. It was a bestseller, according to Amazon Kindle, and the name of that e-book was Jewish Privilege. Jewish Privilege. That got yeah. banned. Why did that get banned? Because there is such a thing as Jewish privilege in this country. Look at uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Look at Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz uh, was accused by some woman of sexual molestation. Uh, these people, you never, you never see a Jew going to jail for sexual molestation. Jeffrey Epstein was the exception that proved the rule, okay? And he got murdered in jail so that the other people wouldn't have to go to jail. Okay, so there is such a thing as Jewish privilege Now, you have these Jewish girls pretending that they're uh, uh, somehow not white. Now they're not white, and they're revolutionaries, and they're attacking white people. This is all political theater, and it all goes back to what I said at the beginning about having to distinguish between categories of reality and categories of the mind. Okay? I'll give, I'll give you another example. Uh, there, you, there's a category of reality called people who voted for Donald Trump. Okay, you can find out who they are, their names, they have addresses, and so on and so forth. You can look them up in the phone book. Now, Hillary Clinton did not like that group of people, obviously, because she lost the election. So what did she say? She said they were a basket of deplorables. Now, can you look up a basket of deplorables in the phone book? No. This is all a pure category of Hillary Clinton's mind. So that's the way you have to distinguish here between uh, actual realities of, let's say, biological realities and the meaning that is being imposed on them to create a revolution. One of, one of the things that came out during this period of time is all of these black people that support Donald Trump, all the black people who do not agree with Black Lives Matter. This, this, this is the, the refutation of racism, because just because you have a certain color skin and shaped nose doesn't mean you can predict that person's political views anymore. You can't do it. What, what, what is your hypothesis about Donald Trump? I know you voted for Donald Trump. I know you had hopes about Donald Trump. You're not the only one that had hopes about Donald Trump, but what's your view of him now? Is he a 4D chess player? Is he a naive boomer? Or is he a Zionist oligarch slash elite slash neoliberal puppet? He's all of the above. You can, you can name uh, just a whole list of things that are completely contradictory and everyone is true of Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, 
So, for example, uh, Donald Trump is the most pro-life president in the history of the United States. No question. Donald Trump is also the most pro-homosexual president in the history of the United States. No question about that. Donald Trump is the most pro-Jewish president in the history of the United States. He is the president that is hated most by Jews, by the overwhelming majority of Jews. All of these things are true. They're all contradictory. There's no coherence at all to Donald Trump's program. So he is, to get to another issue, he is a friend of the oligarchs. He appointed Mnuchin, who was a representative of Wall Street, to become Secretary of Treasury. But he is also a believer in the common man and America first in terms of tariffs and manufacturing, protecting manufacturing. They are all these contradictory statements are true of Donald Trump. Uh, but what to think about him? Can we or can goodwilling Americans have any hopes about him or is this chaos he brings with himself and the chaos that exists in his mind and his actions um, truly a, a chaos and, and one cannot predict anything about him? Well, Bill Crystal just announced that if Trump is reelected, there will be a left-wing cultural revolution in the United States of America. Uh, Bill Crystal is now uh, campaigning for Joe Biden. Uh, Bill Crystal is a, a Jewish neocon. And so when he had access to the White House, he was a flaming patriot and a Republican. And now that he's out of power, he's become a revolutionary once again. Uh, because that is the, the default setting for, for uh, the Jewish mind, uh, revolution, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So, uh, chaos, we are, as I said, we are in the middle of a revolution, and the focus of that revolution is Donald Trump. The revolution is there to overthrow the leader, overthrow the current leader. That's Donald Trump. Make sure that he does not get reelected. If he is reelected, and I think there's a good chance that will happen because of reaction to all of the rioting, uh, then uh, he will have to deal with the rioting uh, immediately uh, on, in the whole country as he dealt with it in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., where he has police power, shut down the rioting, uh, and they are now prosecuting four people who tried to tear down the statue of uh, uh, Andrew Jackson. Uh, what are your predictions or what are your statistics uh, you, you follow or you have evidence of? Is it true that Trump is losing his his uh, his base? A lot of people that voted for him in 2016 or or do you think he's uh, about to win his uh, second election? Uh, did he react uh, too slowly, too passively? to non-distinctively, what, what is your opinion on him? To the looters, to the Black Lives Matter no, I think he, terrorists? I think he reacted immediately and effectively to the looters. The problem, he did not react immediately and effectively to the COVID crisis because he didn't understand that Anthony Fauci is working with uh, Bill Gates as part of the uh, oligarchic big pharma combine that wants to control everyone through medicine and create a, a mandatory vaccine. He didn't understand that. He had to learn that quickly. But I think he ended up sidelining Fauci, would not allow him to appear with him. So uh, it, 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 all of the news reports are saying that Donald Trump is going to lose. But they all said that for the first time. They all predicted he was going to lose the first time, and he won. So my feeling is the biggest liability that Trump has is the um, – his uh, relationship with Israel and allowing Israel to run our foreign policy in the Middle East. That's a disastrous mistake on Trump's part. It contradicts America first. Uh, so whether that liability will be big enough to deny him election at this point is something that I can't say because it's, we're too far away from the election and too many things can happen between now and then. But if you're asking me about the riots, I think that that got him votes. He didn't lose votes, he gained votes because of the riots. About the elites, in your speculation, how many elites are there and how cohesive they are amongst them 
And is there a hierarchy amongst them? Uh, How many are there? Uh, they yeah. are, by, because they are elite, they are, by definition, a small number of people. Uh, they talk about themselves as the 1%. Uh, that's, the, that's the figure that got used when I was at Occupy Wall Street. They would put little uh, signs in their windows at the brokerage firms, and the sign would say 1%. <laughs> now, that 1% is divided. Uh, among themselves. Uh, the Jews are a significant m part of the elite, of the oligarchs, because they control the media and they control finance, they control Wall Street. So those are two significant chokeholds. Um, but they, even the Jews, are at war with each other. So, for example, the ADL is now headed by Mr. Greenblatt. Mr. Greenblatt is a Democrat, and he was uh, worked in the Obama administration, and the people at Commentary hate Mr. Greenblatt. The people like who, uh, like John Pedars, now son of Norma Pedars, the Commentary crowd does not like uh, Greenblatt, and so there is conflict there, and Greenblatt knows it. And the main source of conflict is that Greenblatt has resurrected the Black Jewish Alliance, uh, which Commentary did not like. The most famous article that ever appeared in commentary was uh, My Negro Problem and Ours by um, Norman Pedaritz. appeared in the 1960s at the height of the civil rights movement. So this split has existed. The only way they solve this split is by inviting people like me into the room, and that immediately resolves the problem because they both get to agree that I'm an anti-Semite, and that unites them for about five minutes. <laughs> but after that, they start fighting with each other again. Uh, this is what I wanted to ask you about Jews. I, I asked this same question to Kevin McDonald a couple of days ago. Uh, these Jews, okay, I, I understand you're talking about Jews as a uh, theological entity as opposed to, to Catholics, but is there any historical, genetical, um, cognitive continuity between Hebrews of the Old Testament or Hebrews of the period of uh, when Jesus lived and modern modern Jews or the Jew the, the people that call themselves Jews uh, nowadays and and are uh, the agents of the Jewish privilege uh, as you articulated it before no there's no genetic continuity whatsoever because uh, most Jews are, are in America are Ashkenazi Jews and they are a Turkic race they're they're converted uh, uh, in the ninth century I believe so no they are there is no biological continuity and so therefore there is no reason to claim any biological determinism here which I've never claimed mm. I'm saying that the continuity uh, is theological and that is based on rejection of Logos, beginning with rejection of Christ. And that's what makes Jews revolutionaries. And this is passed on by culture. I mean, culture also obviously includes your, your family. And your family is the first school that you go to. And they are the ones that tell you about the bad things that the Tsar did to us Jews in Russia. And that's how you develop this animosity toward the Goyim. You learn it at home, and then it's reinforced in the synagogue, and then it's reinforced by Hollywood, by people like Steven Spielberg, who makes you afraid that the Nazis are going to march down the street and drag you off to a concentration camp. So it's layer upon layer of culture which creates Jewish identity. Uh, your book, History of Logos, Logos of, of History, uh, obviously brings with itself a certain optimism about the world and the order in, in the world. Uh, what I wanted to ask you in the light of uh, these events in America and events in Slovenia and across the Europe and the West uh, um, also, is a regression a necessary, a necessary step of Logos rising because that's, that's, these events seem, yeah. I mean, it, you're, you're asking probably the most profound question in that book. 
and it focuses on uh, Vico. Vico came up with the, the law, the Italian, the philosopher from Naples in 18th century. He wrote uh, Nuova Scienza. And uh, he came up with the law of the rise and fall of, of empires. And so the classic example would be the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, which was in every Italian's mind because they have all these ruins. You know, if you go to Rome, you go to the uh, Forum, uh, you see the ruins of a past culture. And you realize that you are the descendant of this culture that once was the most powerful uh, force on the earth. And it's different now. And that's what uh, Vico, the way Vico grew up. He grew up in Naples, uh, near Pompeii. You know, all, of, all this is in the background of his mind. So the question is, the, the, when the culture goes into decline, is that inevitable? Is, is there something you can do about it? Now, if you go, if you as a person go into decline and you start drinking and chasing women in bars, uh, you can reform. You can have a moral reform. You can repent and you can say, I'm sorry. And then you can go back and you'll eventually have a happy outcome and you will, you will be saved if you're a Catholic, if you're baptized. Okay, well, can the culture do that? Well, that's the big question. Because what he said was, Rome went into an inevitable decline and it could not stop it. But something new rose out of it, not uh, the Holy Roman Empire rose out of the ruins and that was Christian and that succeeded. Well, at that point, there was no indication that the uh, West was going to go into a state of decline, certainly not in the 18th century, not even in, in Naples. So the question is, can a culture pull back from the brink or is it going to be inevitable that it will go into decline and will inevitably re be replaced by another culture? I, I don't think there's an answer in Vico. I, I just don't think Vico provides an answer to that question. I, I have to tell you an anecdote from my life, from the times I, I was a student. Uh, I was a student at the philosophy department in Maribor, which is a department of analytical philosophy. And analytical philosophers don't put a lot of uh, emphasis on history of philosophy. Uh, but we had uh, lectures from history of philosophy and they gave them to a lecturer, to an old professor just before pension, um, uh, who said out loud that she was Jewish and she was very proud of it. And uh, the, all the lectures were basically about how the majority or all of the philosophers in the history of philosophy were basically Jewish. Ah. Uh, <laughs> every single philosopher she described in the history of philosophy that had any Jewish heritage, she mentioned that, and um, and the emphasis was on the trivia, their their life. And I, as a as an analytical philosopher, formally educated analytical philosopher, and analytical philosopher intuitively, I always thought of it. Um, this is so shallow it doesn't is, matter the, the trivia doesn't matter the trivia doesn't matter but i listened to your podcast a, a couple of months ago i listened to the podcast that you you had an interview you had with a i believe scottish scottish youtuber i can't remember his name and i first uh, heard uh, you talking about Hegel's life and Vico's life and and the private lives of philosophers, and it was uh, I have to thank you. It was the for the first time, I I got it how the personal lives of philosophers uh, really meant a lot uh, when you try to understand their ideas and their arguments. There is no vacuum of ideas and arguments. Right. Right. Yeah, well, I'm sorry you had to suffer through analytic philosophy. That, that was a mistake. It was a dead end in the history of philosophy. No one does it anymore. And it's time to get back to the big picture. And the big picture is Logos and the history of Logos. And that's why I wrote it. Uh, this is the end of uh, the history of Logos is basically the, the demise of Thomism in the United States of America. And the people who strangled Thomism in its cradle in America were all analytic philosophers. 
That's what they did. They all had this kind of pseudo-scientific attitude toward everything that made them uh, totally, everything they said was totally insignificant. It was just quibbling over insignificant differences and uh, ignoring the big picture. Now, unfortunately, you've got a Jewish lady uh, for whom the big picture is Jewish ethnocentrism. So you didn't know that Thomas Aquinas was a Jew, did you? Or that Occam was a Jew? Or that Vico was a Jew, or that Hegel was a Jew. Wait a minute, where, why, why am I, what am I missing here? The Jews did not appear on this uh, scene until the 18th century. They had nothing to say, nothing to say about philosophy until the 18th century, and then it was basically Solomon Maimon complaining about being raised in the shtetl and converting to German idealism, basically the German philosophy becoming a German, as did. Moses Mendelssohn, to some extent. That's the beginning of Jewish philosophy. And it lasted how long? What's the end of Jewish philosophy? Is it Jacques Derrida, where, where metaphysics commits suicide on his watch? Uh, it, Jew, Jewish philosophy, it's not going to flourish. You can't have philosophy flourish among a group of people who are in rebellion against Logos. It's not going to work. Yeah, this seems very logical. Thank <laughs> um, you. I know that's the highest compliment that you, an analytic philosopher, can come up with. <laughs> um, we, uh, we Slovenes and ex-Yugoslavs that were educated in in communism, we always thought this is a, a thing that communism has. But I can see that it's no different in, in America, for example. But okay, we were educated as the history was presented to us as a gradual liberation from tyranny of church and kings, uh, which is basically equated with Logos rising. Um, in this context, for example, Middle Ages were presented as a, as a bad period. So what I wanted from you is to to comment on this uh, um, dialectics between Middle Ages, Enlightenment, Antiquity, Middle Ages, Enlightenment, German idealism. Could you comment okay. on this? You want the, the elevator speech, history of philosophy here. Okay. Mm. So you had... Uh, <laughs> you... Uh, you had uh, an impasse with Averroes. Islamic philosophy reached a dead end with Averroes, who was confronted with the statement that the Quran said the, the world is etern- is, came into existence, and Aristotle said it's eternal, and how do you reconcile those two things? Uh, well, he couldn't do it. And so C.J. of Brabant in Paris in the 13th century said, they're both true. And he was called an Averroist because he said that. And Aquinas said, no, they're not both true. You can't have two truths. You've just violated the principle of non-contradiction. And then he said, even if the earth was eternal, it still had to come into being. Now, that is one of the most sophisticated comments in the history of philosophy. Okay? It led right up to one of the stupidest comments in the history of philosophy, which was Daniel Dennett, the atheist, who said... Uh, the world brought itself into existence out of nothing or something yeah. very small. That has got to be one of the stupidest statements in the history of philosophy. Okay? Because it, in order to bring itself into existence, it had to exist before it existed, which is impossible. So you go, that's part of the whole spectrum here of how this rose and collapsed in the West. Okay? But Aquinas established secondary causality because he understood the incarnation, which the Islamic world did not. If there is a Logos in creation, intimately connected with creation, you can understand the Logos of creation simply by studying it. And that's precisely what happened at this point. We had uh, the uh, scholastic synthesis collapsed, uh, and you had either faith or reason, once again, the same way it was in Islam, And William of Ockham was the uh, man who accomplished this disconnection. It was called nominalism. So on the one hand, the the faith part led directly to Luther. 
through nominalism. William of Ockham died in Munich. I had dinner at the restaurant, which is now in his former Franciscan monastery. He died of the Black Plague in Munich in 1345 or something like that. What you have at this point is that they separate. So Luther now is all faith and no reason. This leads to a reaction. It leads to religious wars. It leads to a repudiation of religion. Because if war, religion can lead to war, then uh, we're not interested. And the reaction was known as the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment said, basically, we don't need. We can have reason without faith. After Luther said, we can have faith without reason. It's the natural reaction to Lutheranism and the, uh, the religious wars, the Thirty Years' War. The culmination of this was Hegel. Hegel was a Lutheran seminarian who was 19 years old when the French Revolution broke out. So it's the culmination of the Enlightenment, and Hegel is going to bring together uh, Lutheran theology and Enlightenment thought. That's his task in life. And the way he's going to do it is through the dialectic. And the dialectic is his enlightenment version of the Trinity. He's a theologian. Remember, all of the German idealists are, Ger are Lutheran theologians. And they're all concerned about, can we, can we talk about the truths of faith in, terms, in scientific terms, in terms of the enlightenment? And that's what Hegel tried to do with the Trinity, which is a noble task, but he screwed it up. And you know the reason why, uh, because if you want to study the Trinity, the best way uh, to do this is not having sex with your chambermaid. That darkens the mind, as it did with Luther. And so as a result, he screwed it up and he made, put, he entered, he put negation into the dialectic, which is his secularized version of the Trinity. You cannot do that. You cannot say that the son is the negation of the father. Of course, if you've got an illegitimate son coming along, you feel that way. You obviously feel that way. That this is going to negate my career if anybody finds out about this. That led to the problems with Hegel's dialectic. Okay, so Feuerbach at this point, a student of Hegel, writes to him and says, you don't need God. This works, this works all by itself. It's a machine. The dialectic is a machine that works all by itself. And the main student of Feuerbach was Karl Marx, who created something called dialectical materialism, which is a contradiction in terms. You can't have dialectical materialism. Hegel would roll over in his grave if he heard about that, because the dialectic only functions in the realm of spirit. So then you have communism, and that led to the Russian Revolution, uh, which led to the Jews uh, taking over Russia. The Russian Bolshevism was a Jewish operation. There's no question about it. No question. And uh, the, they, uh, they created this revolution, uh, which was the culmination of materialistic thought throughout the 19th century. So Hegel died in 1831. That was the end of any type of, uh, what should you say, uh, geist, any Gosh. type of spirit in philosophy. It became, we, it became materialism after that. For the 19th century, up until the end of the 19th century, all of the philosophers were physicists. And the culmination of this was Werner Heisenberg. I have a whole chapter on Werner Heisenberg in the book. And Werner Heisenberg took atomism to its logical conclusion, which is that there are no atoms. They all disappeared. If by atom you mean a, a block, that was what the, the materialists believed in, that everything was matter in motion. So the fact that you, you're smiling is because those balls are bumping together quickly. And the fact that you're sad means that they're just going like this. Everything is reducible to matter in motion. That's preposterous. We know it's preposterous, but it was Heisenberg who refuted it because he said you can keep splitting it and splitting it and splitting it until finally it turns into energy. So it's not there. There is no ultimate ball, atom, <laughs> something you can't split. That's the end of materialism. Okay? And at that point, finally, the world catches up to that fact in 1979 
when the Ayatollah Khomeini returns to Iran and history, uh, uh, materialism is dead. He overthrows American materialism in February of 79. And four months later, Pope John Paul II says mass in Poland. And that is the beginning of the end of Soviet materialism. And that's it. That's the end of history. So there, that's the elevator speech for the history of philosophy. Now, what did that cover what you need? I you needed wanted to know. Did that cover what you wanted to know? Yes, but uh, where? Thank you for that. Uh, but where are we now, uh, Doctor? After, for example, ninety-one. After the fall of Berlin Wall. After the fall of Soviet materialism. After the fall of American materialism in Iran. Um, after what we can see uh, today in America, what we can see today in the West, in the Europe, and so forth, what we saw in the 90s in in, in Balkans, in ex-Yugoslavia. Um, where... It was a tragedy yeah. what happened in the Balkans. The, the attack on Serbia it was all a tragedy. Uh, but that's because uh, the American empire is a tragic enterprise. And so what you saw was the triumph of America over the Soviet Union, that led to a civil war in America. Every successful revolution leads to a civil war. It's it's a rule of history. And so now we are in the middle of a civil war in the United States of America. The two sides, uh, however you wanted to describe them. Uh, we are, so if we go back to the 70s, I just mentioned 79. If you go back to 1978, 77, it looked as if communism were triumphing, triumphing throughout the world. One country after another had, had become communist. And then suddenly it changed like that. It was 79. It was a miracle. 1979 was the, I, uh, the chapter in my book about that is called the Honest Mirabilis. It was a miraculous year. Because it changed dramatically. We thought materialism was going to triumph and it collapsed uh, overnight. But not in actuality, theoretically it collapsed and then it takes a while for the reality to sink in. And that's where we are. We're in a similar situation right now. Okay. We are in the, a civil war in the American empire between two groups of oligarchs. And what we need is some type of spiritual uh, alternative to American materialism and the American empire. And that's uh, what I'm talking about in St. Louis. Okay. We have to reassert our identity as Catholics because we have had this identity theft. They're trying to portray us as white people. They're trying to portray us as one thing or other. We have to have a reassertion of identity of Catholics, and we have to have unity in the Catholic Church, and we don't have it. And the main thing blocking unity is the Church's understanding of the Jews. They have a completely false understanding of the Jews, and as a result, they cannot deal with Jewish subversion. That has to change. There has to be a reform in the Catholic Church, because we are not, the only way you succeed is with some type of spiritual power, some type of spiritual understanding of the situation. Uh, what do you think about uh, some what uh, very popular in America and all over the world, uh, American Bishop Barron? I, I read a couple of his tweets uh, a while ago when some people were asking him uh, or asking him, him out about the uh, the statues, the Catholic statues that have been um, uh, attacked at. And uh, Bishop Barron basically said, uh, uh, the clergy cannot do anything about it. You uh, lay people are the ones who have to do something about it. What do you think about it? That's this. preposterous. That's preposterous. The, the bishop should be leading the laity. The bishop should be in front of that statue in St. Louis. Uh, ask Bishop Barron about Dagger John Hughes in, in uh, New York City, the Irish, the, the, the famous Irish bishop uh, during the nativist riots. During the nativist riots, he stood in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral with the Irish cops, and they defended that cathedral from desecration. So he's completely wrong 
on that. Completely wrong. But again, it goes back to the Jewish question. Barron can't get that right. And and if you want to the classic instance of this, go look at his interview with Ben Shapiro. Yeah, so, I watched the interview. So yeah. Ben Shapiro, the cocky Jew, you know, who knows everything, says to Barron, uh, am I going to hell or something like that? Mm. Now, what what does first of all, what, what is Barron supposed to say at this point? I, I don't know, Ben, are you? Uh, 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 what he should have said is baptism is necessary for salvation. Okay, if you refuse to be baptized, you cannot be saved. Now, there are people who were not baptized who didn't know about Jesus Christ. If you're a Yanomamo uh, living in the Amazon rainforest in 600 B.C., you cannot know about Jesus Christ, okay? You could be saved. It's theoretically possible. It's unlikely. But if you follow the moral law, you can be saved. And that's up to, that's God's judgment. That's not our judgment. And if you are saved, it's only because Jesus Christ uh, went down to hell and opened the gates of hell. So Bishop Barron could have said all of those things, and he didn't say any of those things. Completely failed to proclaim the gospel. So shame on him. Yeah, shame on Bishop Barron. That was really uh, that was really kind of preposterous. I, I remember that interview. I watched that interview. Um, um, I uh, you mentioned the, the the cocky Jew Ben Shapiro. Uh, he's obviously a, a, a. I discussed that also with Kevin McDonald. Ben Shapiro is obviously a war hawk for Israel. He obviously seems or at least uh, we can speculate very fairly that he is more pro-Israel than pro, uh, pro-America. pro But he's also some sort of a hybrid. He's a socially conservative in a sense. He's, um, he's obviously not a Trotskyist. He's not a socialist and so forth as the Trotskyists, uh, Trotskyists uh, that, are, that are the constitution. Uh, con- that constituted the, the neocons. Now, now wait, wait a minute. I am going to contest that. I think he is yeah, a Trotskyite. I think you, he is you, a Trotskyite. Oh, okay. yeah, first of all, what is he? Let's name what he is. He's a neoconservative. Yeah. And the father of neoconservatism was Irving Kristol. And Irving Kristol was a Trotskyite in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a called himself a conservative in, the, in 2000. Okay. That's when George Bush became president and the neoconservatives took over the administration at that point, and they launched war, war. They, the neoconservatives are just like Trotsky in that they want perpetual war. It's just it's not for the uh, communist international. It's for uh, Israel and the American empire. So, they, so he is a, a, a war hawk, and, and Trotsky was a war hawk too. He was head yeah. of the army. Trotsky was head of the army. Have you seen Have you seen the Russian series on Trotsky? Have you seen it? Uh, it's on Netflix. I'll watch it, but uh, no, I haven't seen it yet. Do you Do you speak Russian? Sadly, no, I don't. <laughs> okay, it's it's in Russian. It's a very good series. It's in Russian and it's got English subtitles, so you could watch it on Netflix. Cool, I watched it. Uh, so it's called Trotsky, or Trotsky. Or Trotsky? That's it. Just Trotsky. Yeah, watch it. Yeah, this is how for for people like me that uh, that watch these YouTube videos, that YouTube influencers from America, um, we were we were the majority of us were seduced in 2016, 2015 with uh, libertarianism, with, uh, uh, with with William F. Buckley conservatives. Uh, um, uh, and uh, th- 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 this is yeah, the one bad. You've got one bad education. After yeah, of course. Of you course. go from from analytic philosophy <laughs> to libertarianism. I mean, it's it's like the the dustbin of English history, and that's that's you're you're. I feel yeah. sorry for you. Me too, and I, demand, I think... demand reparations from the United States. Or <laughs> yeah, I should, I should, because of my uh, cognitive inability till now. And I thank God for for people like you, Doctor Jones. Um, yeah, 
I, I should, I should get reparations, intellectual you probably, reparations. You've got for, the first lady in the White House now. There, this is your chance. You've got a sympathetic ear in the White House. Yeah, and you, you know, uh, our Slovene media uh, is is very. Um, uh, it's it's not positive towards uh, the floaters, the, the 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 first lady. Why not? Why not? What's going uh, be, on here? Because the mainstream Slovene media is probably this is my speculation. You 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 probably don't know our our media, but it's probably not Slovene or it doesn't identify as Slovene or European and and so forth. Um, but this is still this now is, only. This is ridiculous. This is re- yeah. she is the most. She is, without a doubt, the most gorgeous first lady in the history of the United States of America. I mean, nobody comes close. Nobody (laughs) comes close. She should be on the cover of every single women's magazine. They should be asking her about how she gets her hair done and what kind of Slovenian dishes she cooks for the president. None of this. None of this. It's ridiculous. No one calls her Slovene national television, doesn't call her um, Slovene uh, commercial televisions, commercial, so-called commercial and so-called private. Uh, don't call ridiculous. her, don't interview her. Yeah, they, they demonize the her. Famous, she's the <laughs> world's most famous Slovenian at the moment. They make fun of her. She, she was ridiculous. supposed to be well, stupid. Well, there's a certain group, I think, that's got control of your, of your media. I don't know for sure, but I suspect it's the same group that controls it over here. Yeah, prob- <laughs> probably. And probably it's the same in Croatia and, and in Serbia and, and, and in all the parts of ex-Yugoslavia. This is, Slovenia is not the, the, the only country. Uh, but yeah, for example, Slovenia national television is being um, subsidized by all the taxpayers. But it's, uh, it's obviously a, a globalist uh, agenda promoting uh, television. Right. It, 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 has, it has live streams of Catholic masses once a week, once every uh, now and then. But this is, this is practically all. This is practically all. This is why what we're doing is important. This is why what you're doing is important. And this is why my YouTube channel was shut down. That's all it's all revolves around the same issue. Basically, it's psychological warfare, which is to prohibit unauthorized communication between subject peoples. And we are both subject peoples uh, in uh, the American empire. It's that simple. This is, um, but how... How do, did we come till till here? Is this the result of our European or Catholic aristocracy, our, our former elites? Um, were they too corrupted, and now we have to pay their debts towards yes, Jews? That's part of it. Part of the Jews promoted sexual revolution during the uh, the entire time they were in control of Hollywood. The Catholics held them in line for 31 years. When the, when the Jews broke the code in 65, they immediately got involved in pornography. And uh, I don't know whether you remember Duza Makaviev. Do you remember yeah, you to- him? You, you told me about him, uh, and I watched uh, yeah, a couple of his works later on. You, uh, in our first interview, you told me about Dusan Makaviev. I think Makavev. he's yeah, it's pronounced Makavev. Yeah, the Serbian, um, the Serbian. Yeah. Well, there was all, all throughout the West, uh, all throughout Europe, there was a, a determination to break the production code. Uh, basically, introduce sex onto into the movies. Ingmar Bergman played a role in this. Uh, all kinds of people played a role in it, and the result was the sexual corruption of the European people. Uh, Germany is the classic example of that. I've written extensively about that. I lived in Germany. I had a front row seat when I was there in the 70s. I was teaching in a gymnasium when the Schulmädchen report was being broadcast in local theaters. And I didn't know, I didn't understand what was going on. It was only later that I understood, could put the big picture together. That's the libido dominandi story. That's sexual liberation and political control. That's what led to the weakening of the European peoples. And, and as soon as you're weak, then the Jews take control of your government. Ireland, classic example of what we're talking about. Well, every, country, uh, every country in Europe has been affected. 
every country. Do, do, you, do you think the Second World War uh, is, uh, was already a result of corruption of our European elites and we didn't have basically any, any chance? Uh, we were basically um, torn between the, 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 the Americans uh, uh, back then Uh, probably uh, backed by 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 Jews, the Brits, probably the Churchill, probably uh, backed financially and so forth by 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 Jews and uh, and uh, Nazi Germany. W what's your view on the, the the Second World War? The Second World War was the continuation of the First World War. The First World War was basically England uh, trying to destroy German. Uh, hegemony on the continent. It's that simple. Churchill is the man. I cover this in Barren Metal, my history of capitalism. Okay, the, the crucial moment came with the Second Vatican Council. And uh, it was uh, Pius XII died in 1958. And at that point, Cardinal Ottaviani went to uh, Roncalli, to John XXIII, and said, we have a crisis now. Okay, first of all, there's a crisis in the church. Uh, it's too centralized. We need to spread out the authority a little bit. But also, we are caught in the middle of a big battle between the United States and the Soviet Union. And they're both bad. They're both bad, and they're both determined to destroy Italian culture. Well, that's what he's primarily, and the church, Catholic culture. So the correlative to Ottaviani's understanding, Ottaviani wrote a preliminary documents for Vatican II which are worth reading because this is where he talks about the threat that the United States poses. And he doesn't use the word, but it's obviously a Jewish threat because he's talking about Hollywood and psychoanalysis. They're two Jewish operations. He didn't say Jew, but that's what they are. And that's every bit as bad as the Soviet Union. That's the, set, the setting for the Second Vatican Council, and it was hijacked. Okay, there were people, I'm not talking about the documents, But the CIA got involved in hijacking the council with Dignitatis Humanae, and the Jews got involved in hijacking the council with uh, Nostritate. I'm not saying they succeeded in writing the documents, but they succeeded in interpreting the documents, and they created the illusion that the church had changed, and this precipitated a crisis in the church that goes to this day, to this day, because the church has not resolved the Jewish question. They are cut off from the classical, from the scriptures that they, there's the basis of their religion. You cannot read the Gospel of St. John and come away from it thinking that the Jews are your friends. You cannot read the Acts of the Apostles. Unless, this is what, this is what the, the, so, the, so what happened is that the Pope, after Paul VI, we have John Paul II, joining the American anti-communist crusade. And that has had sad consequences for the Catholic Church because it basically crippled the bishop's resistance to the American government. And now we're seeing the fruits of that with the COVID lockdown, where the, the government is telling the church, you have to, telling the church what the liturgical rules are now. They have no right to do this. And the church is just obeying The obeying Anthony Fauci, wearing masks. Nobody's wearing masks anymore, but they have to wear them in church. This is all the fruits of John Paul II and the anti-communist crusade. And the first casualty of the anti-communist crusade was Yugoslavia. The first casualty. Because the Pope rushed in and recognized Croatia. Yeah, um... My final question, a bit speculative, uh, but will there ever be time on earth there won't be any Jewish revolutionary spirit anymore? That could happen tomorrow. Every, every, every month I get a letter from a Jew who has converted to Catholicism because of reading the Jewish revolutionary spirit. This is why that book had to be banned. This is the real threat. I am the one who is posing the real threat because I am acting out of love of the Jews. 
you cannot tell the Jew uh, uh, you're going to go to heaven and you're wonderful and not expect him to have a bad outcome. There's one, one way you can talk to the Jews, and the paradigm is St. Peter, and it's in the Acts of the Apostles when he goes back to Jerusalem after the Pentecost, and he says to the Jews, you killed Jesus Christ. First thing he says. And at that point, the Jews say they are cut to the heart. And then the Jew says, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, you have to be baptized. That's what Bishop Barron should have said to Ben Shapiro. The fact that he didn't say it is part of the crisis that we're going through right now. And we have to resolve this and get back to that attitude toward the Jews. That's the only way out right now. That's what we have to do. Dr. Jones, thank you for your substantive thought, for your time. Thank you for uh, giving me another interview. Uh, it's been an honor and uh, have a pleasant day. And I Thank hope you. you you manage to promote your thought uh, on other platforms as as uh, as good as you did it on uh, YouTube. With your help, I will. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Good talk to you. Bye bye. Bye bye.